Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Join us as we listen to queer classical music from around the world, talk with composers, and explore the wonderful, diverse, and growing repertoire of LGBTQ musicians. In the first half of the show today, Jacob interviews the talented Lyaf Mosbau, principal oboist at the Kitchener Waterloo Symphony, about his passion for music. In the second part, Jacob and I listen to a couple of pieces from the Canadian-American composer Jared Miller, whose works have been called playful, hypnotic and even phantasmagorical. So join us as we explore the world of queer classical music. Uh, today on the Classical Queer Podcast, we have the wonderful life of Mazba, who is a oboist, violist, uh, performer, kind of, uh, well, I'll, I'll let him tell his whole story, but um, kind of a, a multi-instrumentalist uh, and kind of bridges the, the world between classical music and uh, pop folk recording, many, many different things, um, and runs some uh, really interesting music. Uh, and so we're, we're quite thrilled to have you. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Um, and how are things uh, in, in lockdown in, in Ontario where you are? Ah, it's, uh, in some ways, it seems like it's the end of the tunnel is in sight. And then in other ways, it's sort of like, you know, just trying to, trying to stay safe as long as possible and w- with the hope of being able to create and see family and friends and do all the wonderful things as soon as humanly possible <laughs> and that's starting but yeah it it's been a starting. long time as we all know <laughs> and and you play with the uh kitchener waterloo symphony which has been maybe unlike uh some uh, orchestras around the world actually quite productive and, and quite able to perform over the past year uh doing a lot of um kind of live broadcast but recording and then and sending stuff out um when when was the last time you played with them it's been a couple months hasn't it yeah i think i think we had our last show i think it was around the end of march or 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 thereabouts yeah we had planned sort of um you know since we, we started back up in i think it was end of january beginning of february um you know with all the different lockdowns we've been in and out of the concert hall and our concert hall is quite large so uh, we were able to have distanced and, you know, fully plexiglassed woodwinds. And um, uh, so we were able to have a full orchestra for a big chunk of the season. Uh, but yeah, we stopped kind of suddenly at the last lockdown. It was kind of like they announced it. And then the next night was our last concert all of a sudden. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's, been a, it's been a couple of months. But like you said, uh, well, I feel pretty lucky to have been still doing a large large amount of concerts relatively speaking for for covid times uh, september to december was um you know, i wouldn't say it's a regular season but we were doing weekly shows and you know initially they had canceled or postponed the season planned for 2020 2021 uh to this next coming season and then kind of had to go sort of a few weeks at a time 
based on what the current guidelines were for um, health and safety and all those kind of things. So it was really a challenging year for a lot of reasons, but also super lucky that we were able to do those concerts at all. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been with that that orchestra? Uh, this would be the end, uh, the end of my second season with the Kitchener Wireless Symphony. Oh, so like half of your half yeah, of your time has much. been this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We the first very first lockdown in that March was the end of uh, end of our first my first season with the symphony. So right. Yeah. <laughs> tumultuous couple years and so yeah, a three-year i call it my three-year two-year tenure because <laughs> you know it's just gonna take me a while to get there but fair, fair. Uh, so you've been with the uh, kitchener waterloo for for two years and where were you before that one um i had been freelancing in toronto um from 2013 to 2019 uh i'm from toronto and had moved out to saskatchewan to play in Saskatoon Symphony and then the Regina Symphony and we were out there for about five years and then I decided that I wanted to come back to Toronto and just uh, flex some different musical muscles if you will and uh, yeah I had a pretty fun adventure it felt very invigorating to make that choice and to kind of explore freelancing in a different way than I had before I had left so yeah, it was a very, very enriched time to be working like a crazy person and, you know, going all over the place and kind of de- developing relationships with people in the city that I had started before, but then was able to sort of cultivate in new ways. After having a job also, you know, people tend to take you more seriously, even mm-hmm. even if you're not serious <laughs> or even if you don't take yourself as seriously. But um, yeah, so yeah, freelancing allowed me to do a lot of uh, the things that I really love, which is a variety of things. So yeah, I was grateful for that variety. And you, uh, I mean, professionally, I mean, professionally as in the, your, your main gig right now are an oboist, um, but you also have done a lot of work as a violist. Um, and so what does that kind of like look like in your career? I mean, as a freelancer, but also as uh, somebody who is in the orchestral world as an oboist, what is, what does that line look like? And Yeah, I think I sort of take cues from uh, what's around me and the opportunities that come up. I feel like my relationship with playing the viola and playing the oboe, it sort of start. It goes back a long way. You know, I started. I started on the violin in middle school and switched to viola. And the same time I switched to viola, I started playing the oboe. And so, in ways, it was transitioning. But I didn't give up my viola. I still chamber music throughout university and um and then that just led to a a different world of um musical genres so i you know just based on who was around and what was going on i ended up kind of entering the world of indie music and um at the time especially i felt like there were a lot of sort of collective groups and uh like the need for string players in those kind of groups. You know, you'd have these bigger groups that had seven or eight people. And um, I started playing in 
one band, the Hidden Cameras, um, which had often had multiple strings and harp and all kinds of crazy things. And uh, that sort of allowed me to keep up my viola playing. So, you know, less and less classical gigs, <laughs> but, uh, you know, still it's still an opportunity to, uh, to, to use those skills and to sort of be in that world a little bit more than I think oboe would have allowed. Although, at this, that being said, I still did a bunch of oboe, mostly recordings for for different bands and such, but definitely the people I met through that allowed the sort of coexistence of of the classical world and the indie world, jazz world, so forth. And um, I also sing, and that was a, a big thing that I love I loved to do, and it's not always as easy to incorporate with instrumental things. And so, yeah, in recent years, I've sort of seeked out opportunities to do that when I can also I, it makes sense to me I'm, I'm a huge fan of like cross-pollination and it always seems so strange to me like this uh like classical music education where it's uh you know classical uh, straight and narrow violin playing for uh 15 years and then you get an orchestra gig and you don't play anything else and the idea of playing jazz is so sinful or pop or folk or anything <laughs> it like makes so much sense that they all inform each other well i definitely think that the um the sort of concept of training for one thing is in some ways it's brilliant i really appreciate my classical training because it gave me certain tools to um to accomplish technically and you know just the, the mentality that went with it the, the discipline and and other things uh helped me like create a good base for what i wanted to do and then um i could i just liked adapting that into other situations and i think that that when you have done different things then you come back to whatever you're doing predominantly and you bring something else to it, even if it's not apparent to other people around you or they don't know what it is, but to you, you know, if you have a certain energy about it because of your other experiences or, you know, one thing I really love about orchestra now and, and being in the principal oboe chair is that because I have an understanding of string music and techniques, I often crave that connection with the concertmaster or, any of the strings really mm -hmm. and being able to understand what it looks like also you know to make visual cues and know what they're saying like speaking that musical language and so in that sense i think i'll i would never give up any of the instruments i learn because i feel like it all can work together and just make it a bit easier to communicate with other colleagues yeah, that's a good point. I don't think I've ever really considered that, but it makes it makes so much sense that if you, uh, yeah, just have an experience playing another orchestral instrument, when you interact with them, you have a different way of interacting. I mean, I always feel like with, with instruments, it's like often I feel like it's the goal to sound like we're singing, mm -hmm. you know? And and I think that that when you understand the mechanics needed to do that, like it's different with each instrument which is so interesting to me because someone who is accomplished at their instrument has mastered it and the stuff that comes from inside them it means they're able to express that 
in in a certain way and that's when you hear that like magical players or players that really do something special that's beyond the technical element and i think we can all benefit from gaining better understanding of 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 what goes into that from the technical side because you know the stuff that's inside is there and how it's executed we may not always understand it but if we do if we are able to sort of broaden our information that we have about those things then it's i find it just really enriching it like it it enhances the experience of working with other people Mm -hmm. there's lots of things i don't understand (laughs) so (laughs) if there's a few things i can latch on to i'm gonna hold on for dear life you know (laughs) um and it i mean it also i mean that that conversation just strikes me so uh poignantly about your work with the uh toronto uh queer songbook orchestra which is a, a group of musicians who are i mean correct me but like largely classically trained but kind of working in a uh, a way that is not always classical that it draws from so many different influences and um, from my understanding of the group kind of expands on that idea of the cross-pollination and bringing that that expertise in very many ways into the orchestra yeah i think um queer songbook orchestra is definitely unique in the sense that oh well it's exactly what we're talking about about sort of like the cross-pollination as you as you put it the group is very, it's very mixed. Like the the concept of it as an orchestra is sort of an, I feel like it's a evolved version because it's not exactly the definition of what you would think it is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are orchestral instruments and there are people who are trained classically, people who have backgrounds in jazz and, you know, like a lot of different experiences all in the same group. And because it's very you know, there's no conductor. So the rehearsal process is unique also because we're we're contributing, we're bringing different things to it, but also different styles. You know, like as classical musicians, it's very like, generally, we, mm-hmm. we feel like we need to get things done or like have a plan or have mm-hmm. a plan, you know, and sort of we're there for rehearsals so let's get down to business you know and and uh i think like the different in backgrounds or styles of rehearsals and other things um it's a good learning experience for both sides to kind of learn how to work together so that i can let go of some of that stuff and see a different different perspective of what's going to enrich the performance and the rehearsal and then also to have that i think having both of those elements having an a freer feeling or um just like focusing on different things depending on what your background is and what your priorities are i think it's important to integrate all of those and i think qso captures that really well in in the in our process Mm-hmm. It's a, I mean, in, in my like uh, academic world, like the queering of the classical orchestra, like if we like physically queer uh, an orchestra, <laughs> like it has uh, a really profound effect. And like some of those are like actual uh, rehearsal process effects and, and interaction effects. And some of it is yeah. um, personnel and membership and, and what you're physically playing. But some of the times it's, it's a, you know how you interact with a, a group of queer musicians is going to be different and 
even if you were playing the exact same rep as you were with uh, like a maybe yeah. traditional orchestra, it just changes the interaction so much. Um, not to put words in your mouth, but I'm I'm going to assume that the QSO has a different vibe than the Kitchener Waterloo. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's safe <laughs> to say yeah. It, it definitely has a. Um, I mean, a lot of us were friends already, and the group was sort of compiled of of um, uh, well, the, like Sean Brody, our leader leader <laughs> uh he was the founder of the group and he brought us all together and and we played in him cameras together and became close and he was a classical trumpet player uh, or a classical trumpet background and was sort of exploring other worlds just like i was and came to a point where the classical route wasn't doing what it needed for him and he wanted to create something different and meaningful and sort of comprised of uh, different elements and I think he really accomplished that well with sort of how it started and and where it's going so mm-hmm. and maybe uh, for you specifically like a, a a comparison between the hidden cameras uh QSO and and the Kitchener Waterloo is kind of a fun way to talk about queerness in those spaces because i mean as we uh, both know who are like classically trained people like the orchestra is not a, a queer centered space generally speaking uh it has a lot of visibility problems and it has a lot of uh repertoire problems and it, it, it certainly oh, yeah. is its Lots own problems <laughs> <laughs> like beyond queerness but like even yes. even yeah. just specifically talking queerness there's so many uh things that that orchestra world can do better um but you've had such different experiences i'm sure in kind of uh the different things you play in and i i'm curious like what you i mean maybe like code switching is like too heavy a term between things but like what does that look like to you as a performer between these organizations i think with i mean what i get out of the different groups is definitely different <laughs> and how I feel is different in all these things. I think with an orchestra, the most exciting thing for me is the, I, mean, I love playing in a big orchestra and big rep, you know, to have uh, a spectrum of colors and, and elements that I can't find anywhere else. So to me, that's like when I'm immersed in that, and and it, I mean, for me, it's almost always about collaboration. Like the my reasons for wanting to continue on certain paths and my reasons for wanting to play music, it's it's very aside from me, like you know, belting show tunes while I'm cooking dinner. That's just selfish. But but generally, it's it's about making music with other people. So so. I think in orchestra, it's that it's totally unique feeling that I can only get there. And similarly with other groups and other styles, like Queer Songbook gives me something really specific. And especially because it's really, it's made me feel closer to the queer community, you know, whatever that means, even around Mm -hmm. the country, because um, most of the time it's based around stories from the community and the music that's connected to that or queer composers or artists that have maybe been not as much highlighted over t- over time. You know, like we did a Billy Strayhorn show 
It's just like things that things that might not necessarily be at the top of people's minds when they think of other genres also. So having the story and that kind of connection um, is a really special thing. And the narrative that it isn't just the music, it's also the, the stories and sentiment that go behind it. And you're experiencing that at the same time. Of course, in classical music, there's still, and orchestral music, there's still stories behind <laughs> the music. But I think, you know, with a group like Queer Songbook or or anything that works in that capacity um, and has that storytelling element, you have that connection that is undeniably going to be different than sort of a, a connection based on what you're reading instead of what you're experiencing. And I think that's an excellent... Um, option for audiences also because it, it I feel like that makes even the classical element or orchestral element of it more accessible to more people mm. and because it's like, sort of like a hybrid group of of uh, musicians it's not just one thing it's not just orchestral it's not just classical it's not just jazz so um yeah in that sense I think it it, it the, the different genres and the different uh, circumstances in creating music is really important. And it gives you totally different things that you can't get find in the other places. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that I mean, helps keep me excited about, about making music. I mean, to be, to be fully honest, when I left Regina, you know, I had things going on in the Regina symphony. I, I had things going on in my head that was kind of like, okay, I've done the path of the classical musician. I worked really hard, got a couple jobs now, which is the goal was always to like win an orchestra job mm -hmm. and you spend really intense amounts of time. And, uh, you know, like I think Saskatoon might have been my fourth audition and mm -hmm. that I won. But now, you know, since then, I've done maybe 30 and each time is six weeks of prep and it's like training you know as you know mm -hmm. there's it's it's an intense um thing so i think having a job and being in that place being like this was the goal this was sort of like the path i had been on is this really what i want am i getting what i need from this you know mm -hmm. and at that time for me it wasn't where i wanted to i, I didn't feel like i i i was i could explore as much as i wanted to musically and I was so grateful for the job but I also was got to a point where I was thinking someone else would be great here too <laughs> and I feel mm -hmm. like I'm gonna take a chance and you know some people might be like whoa you left your job with no other job like are you crazy <laughs> and and I never thought that I was because I, I just figured like I knew that it was just it was an easy decision at the time and, it, and then it, it, it just worked out also really well because I, I managed to get a crazy awesome gig for like six months as I came back. So I had something mm -hmm. lined up for like the beginning of my second wave of, <laughs> I shouldn't use that term, second wave <laughs> of freelance career, but you know, uh, uh, to sort of kick me off to a good start. And yeah, I was glad. It, but now it feels really different. Being in Kitchener's Waterloo Symphony, there were things I was worried about, about being in one job and one place. And um, I think a lot of those things, as you age and as you 
have life experiences and as you decide what you want <laughs> you know you're it, this it feels like a better fit for me here and also because it's close to my family and where I grew up and close to Toronto and close to other opportunities so I don't feel as isolated in my uh, with my endeavors I can still sort of be mm -hmm. outward with them instead of um, getting stuck I always I, I always had a sort of thought in my head that <laughs> I would never name names but but you know sometimes I think in any job where people have been there for 35 or 40 years or longer in any job that's that's like that you're bound to get people who have either lost their will to be there mm -hmm. or their enjoyment has decreased or you know it's really easy to get caught up in the politics of a group and even with the f family dynamics of a group like that um and and i remember just always being hyper aware of not wanting to get to a point where i wasn't enjoying what i was doing anymore because i for myself i just if i i felt like if i got to that point i would i would just change what i was doing because I, I didn't want to i wanted to always be grateful for something when i'm in it you know so if i'm in a job and i know from being on the other side of it being like ah why can't that person just retire they obviously don't want to be there i would love that job you know it's mm -hmm. like and i think that's kind of stayed with me that feeling of being a young kid super eager to do that stuff it's like not that i feel like i have to be that eager to do anything all the time because no one should probably once they're past 25 but <laughs> but i think just uh just have it, trying to keep an awareness of myself just check in with myself and be like am i you know downgrading myself as a person or my emotions by being in a certain situation because and and i think everything has waves so it's okay to be in that place and to have the the natural like uh highs and lows of of any given situation but i think if you stay at the low for too long it's time to make a change it doesn't have to be with anything in particular but you know change is good i always think change is good so i feel like I a, way, a way to keep evolving and you know keep yourself young <laughs> <laughs> i am also a believer in change and that may be my like gemini-ness and my uh my partner andrew would uh really loves less change sometimes, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of moving forward and doing new things. And I also think like those red flags of like, I've been doing this for too long and I feel stagnant. And uh, those are super unhealthy places to be in. And I don't think they're productive. And I think, I mean, I, that being said, I, I do feel like that is a natural part of sort of anything we do in life can have those times. And I think it's, it's okay to acknowledge that or it's important to acknowledge that those things are there and that doesn't always necessarily mean you know it's going to be bad forever like we have to ride the wave but yeah i think if we keep aware of sort of what we want and which is always changing just like everything else then hopefully we at the end of our lives can say <laughs> i feel pretty good i feel pretty good about my choices because <laughs> what you know it's that's all we're responsible for, really. Like, we mm -hmm. have to be responsible for our own choices, so whatever they are. So, as somebody who uh, 
has I like, eat a giant chocolate bar. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so as somebody who's played in, in uh, like a few different orchestras and, and knows the world super well, but also uh, knows the outside world uh, very well outside of or- orchestra bubble, uh, which I think is not not every orchestral musician's uh, view of things. But um, I, th- I think every orchestra in the world is trying so desperately to, to move forward and to... Um, modify their understanding of like what diversity and inclusion and visibility looks like and it's it's not to say that it's an easy path it's it's not um but as somebody on the inside but also somebody with a a great view from out how are orchestras doing what would you love to see so desperately as uh, a queer person in repertoire in structure in visibility yeah i you know, I think the the biggest thing for me would be when organizations ask the questions, how can we diversify? How can we expand? How can we reach more people? How do we stay relevant? All those questions. I think the, the baseline is that they should really listen to the answers that they get from the community. Because not only, you know, are the community our patrons, but you know, it's it's really a reflection of what people want to see or how it, how to make it how to make it better. I, I don't mean better as in like you know the music necessarily, but just sort of at having representation, at making programming more diverse, at making people uh, more people ex- have accessibility to coming to the symphony because. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just can't do it even if they wanted to they couldn't afford it i think listening to the community when they answer the questions that these organizations are are asking i think it's important for them to really try and and listen and act on the, on those things because in a way uh like i mean and that goes all across the board not just in orchestras right it's a thing we're all more aware of now i think you know or at least i definitely am of my own behavior my own choices my own role in things and it's definitely been on my mind as my role moving forward in the orchestra like how can i help or advocate or um support people that that don't have a voice within the organization or within the sort of group of, of of genre and so forth so and i think each organization is dealing with that differently and, and in kitchen I, I definitely feel like there are people who are working and making decisions on programming that are really great and that are mm-hmm. bringing um really diverse artists to to the stage and you know and even with the uh, queer songbook orchestra like we before pandemic hit you know we were scheduled to play uh, our first symphony show so the whole queer songbook workshop which is um about 12 of us i think generally would go and play a symphony show with another symphony so i think even having that presence there and bringing the style of everything that we have going on to an orchestral classical environment I think it's it's something that that will make that environment more welcoming just by doing it more 
you know, because it's learning how to communicate with other people that might communicate in a different way. It's not even about being queer or being, um, you know, in another marginalized group that has no say there. But, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, on, uh, especially in my opinion, sort of along the lines of accessibility to classical music and to not just coming to see classical music, but in education and making sure that everybody who wants to learn an instrument can learn an instrument and that it's not a, a, a question of if they can afford it or not, or if it's, you know, like not suited for them because of lack of accessibility. You know, I think that that's a way to sort of have more representation of different groups of people and perspectives, you know, and I think that's a good place to start as far as like the next generation goes. Mm -hmm. And there are and there are organizations definitely that that work on that. And uh, but I think like if if organizations incorporated that into their plan, it would make a big difference across the board. So I think, you know, it's hard. It's a hard thing to say, like, this is what orchestras should do. But I think sort of taking a, some accountability for the flaws in in the way it's run or what it represents or. You know, even people's perception, you know, like of what a classical orchestra is, because, um, you know, it, it, classical music ha isn't just about, you know, highbrow society and and stuffy white people, you know, like it, it's <laughs> even even over the course of time, even when it was mostly white people, you know, there was a lot of composers who were really p political and speaking out mm -hmm. against things in the time and you know, I think there's a lot of sides to it that that tell stories that a lot of people can relate to. So it's sort of like being able to invite people into that world in a safe way, in an inclusive way, where there can be a connection to the music. Because, I mean, obviously, there's a ton of beautiful classical music. And a lot of the time, you know, the beauty of it is that it speaks for itself when you listen to it, and with a lot of music, you know, but I think like going that extra bit to, um, to make sure that that's accessible, that that feeling is accessible to broader number of people is really important. I was talking with uh, Kate Nishimura last week or two weeks ago, a Canadian composer. Um, and we were talking about this similar idea in uh, a purposefully like creating space and creating a void f that is intentionally filled with um, uh, other voices and, and they won't be filled if we don't create that space. Uh, and so we have to kind of intentionally leave that open, but also that, uh, like, as you say, the one, one of the purposes of classical music or any music is to, to speak to somebody and to provide um, some sort of conversation between that person's life and lived experience and like what they're hearing and experiencing. And if we, and maybe it's just, uh, maybe, maybe it is moving forward, but we have only traditionally like had that conversation with such a narrow swath of people that why would we not have that conversation with everybody? There are so many people's um, lives and experiences that can be reflected in music and and they would feel something so powerful for music if that space was left open for them to feel that. Um, yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think that goes for 
sort of not just say like as an orchestral musician from my perspective when there are artists that come in and they're bringing their stories which are totally mm. different than mine it it's really like my favorite show that we did so my very first show was um a jeremy dutcher orchestral mm. show and of course his album is i mean it's it's absolutely gorgeous music and of course he has classical influence in there but it's all you know stories from his culture and and there was a, a beauty in it and uh, sort of an awareness that came with it that just made me want more and, mm-hmm. and made, made me want to incorporate that more into what we do because, you know, it's, it's sort of broadening the sense of what classical means too. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not strictly classical, obviously, but it's, I think the role of classical music or the direction it can go, um, it, there's so much potential in it. And I think that sometimes we can get in this little bubble that that of the idea of what classical music is or what it should be because of the nature of it, because of the nature of how we learn it or like how we learn to play Schumann differently than Rachmaninoff, you know, mm-hmm. or like the specifics of interpretation of how we interpret this music, I think sometimes can get in our way of actually getting broader than that and applying it to today's world. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's still relevance there for it because it is stories. You know, it it is something that, that I think all those kind of stories should continue into time, into the future. And now it's just a time we need to expand it. We need to, change it how how it looks just like all of the other systems in our country and world (laughs) (laughs) and i'm also like i'm a fan of being pushed in those directions it it feels better for me to be um like jabbed and and pushed and goaded into some new realm that i i hadn't experienced before and i always think as a conductor it part of my job is to do that for the ensemble as well like there's so much comfort uh, that we just sit with that we don't need to and it's so important to just be pushed yeah, or do the pushing i mean i think mm. it's finding the joy in the discomfort you know mm. like i think with a lot of conversations we're all having now uh musically and not musically like that's a place i feel like we should all get comfortable with <laughs> with being mm-hmm. uncomfortable because i think that pushes the the boundaries of things also and it leaves room for for more. And I think not only with relationships with uh, different people, different musical groups, genres, but also with uh, what it looks like going forward, with with how it can change and how the perspe- perspective can change in order to keep it moving, <laughs> to keep mm-hmm. the what we're doing and it's not even about being relevant you know like i know that a lot of orchestras you know struggle with staying relevant or be you know in classical music it's like a sort of perception that you know classical music is dead and blah 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 blah. and i think in a lot of ways some organizations can go down that road where you might not be as excited about myself included to be honest you know like it's not like i look at every orchestra and be like wow that's really excited 
exciting. That's really innovative. You know, often it's like, okay, cool. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Like, even if the orchestra is amazing, you know, it's like, um, there's so much glorious music, but, you know, what else you got? <laughs> <laughs> and I know that, you know, people feel different ways about it, but I think, like, we shouldn't get caught up in, like, trying to uh, appease to only a certain group of people. And if they're not happy with what you're doing, that shouldn't, like, govern, you know, I think there's a way to respect all of the patrons of, of of the orchestra for example and still uh change direction and and expand what you're doing so yeah i don't know you know a specific like short list or anything of how to do that but but i think you know each organization if they're taking a real honest look at themselves can figure it out (laughs) or hopefully well, perhaps that's a that's a good sentiment to end on. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Laya, thank you so much uh, again for for speaking with me today. It's, uh, I mean, always such a, a selfish endeavor to just get to talk to people about uh, queer music making and and talk to uh, people who are out doing wonderful things in the world. But uh, thank you uh, for being on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to listen to uh, two pieces by Jared Miller, but the first one we're going to listen to is called Leviathan. Um, and when I was re-listening to Leviathan for the, the podcast today, it, it struck me how interesting uh, a path Leviathan is in that it, uh, like many pieces, maybe starts out a little nebulous and kind of wandering, and then uh, pieces tend to, you know, maybe come together and build to something. But Leviathan really almost spins out of uh, coming together, and it goes in an entirely different direction. And so it's uh, maybe, to me, feels more calm and settled at the start than it does at the end, where you might expect it to be the other way. It kind of uh, might feel more chaotic and kind of comes to a uh, nice stable position but uh, it almost does the opposite but it's it's a beautiful piece and i really appreciate the way that jared uh, worked with electronics and worked with the strings and it's kind of a, a strange melting feeling through much of it but uh leviathan it's a, it's a great little piece yeah let's listen to it then
Okay, so that was uh, Leviathan by Jared Miller. Um, so Jacob, you've already said a few things. Um, what else do you feel about the piece? It's uh, to me, it's 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 like strangely uh, comforting at the same time as it is unnerving. As I listen to it, it uh, like the strings, which which is a very stringy thing to to be able to do, but these kind of like long glisses downward, this feeling of. Uh, melting into chaos is is unsettling at the same time as it is really beautiful Mm -hmm. and i love the way that jared's able to kind of take that uncomfortableness and make you okay with it that i'm i'm listening to it and it feels kind of um like it's pulling me downward and it's spinning into chaos but i'm i'm on the ride with him it doesn't feel terribly scary it just is kind of a uh, an acceptance of that's where I'm headed <laughs> into, into the chaos, yeah. maybe. Yeah, I kind of when I first started listening to it, I got a very much of a feel of a, a 1960s film score where where you were on some journey a little bit at the beginning, and of course it had almost like sort of mm. a whale song type of feel to it. Um, but as you said, then it sort of got into this. It it shifted or morphed into this sort of dissonant i guess sort of feeling and but but as you say it took you somewhere but it wasn't it wasn't scary but it but it took you into some sort of other place i don't know yeah that's not it's a bit vague i think but but it but it works i mean dissonance is always a good word because it's i mean a it covers all manner of sense that it's it's kind of a a good umbrella term but in this case it's like the truest sense of the word that it just creates this dissonance and it uh from like a harmonic standpoint goes from what is fairly tonal and and kind of structured and and um within a box and these uh glisses the these like slow downward whale song sounds that the strings are doing are taking us slowly into that world of dissonance and it's kind of Mm. prepping our ear for the dissonance that comes and then when the dissonance and maybe that's why it feels okay to go along is that when we get to the dissonance we we've kind of been there before slowly um yeah, I never, I never, yeah, that's an interesting point. I'd never sort of felt I was maybe being prepped, maybe almost for what was going to happen next by having this slowly, you know, descending notes and this kind of thing. And then when we get to it, and then of course it comes out of it a little bit at the end. It comes, it mm-hmm. comes, kind of has a sort of uh, end, but it doesn't really have a resolution, I guess is what I would think. It's kind of, it kind of leaves you a little bit somewhere to me it does yeah you're, you're right it doesn't really have a resolution and maybe part of that is because it comes from a dissonant start to begin with there's there's really no mm. coming back home because home was already a strange dissonant glissy whale song to begin with um and so there really isn't that maybe in, maybe in a piece that has a really strong melodic tonal center or something we can come back to that from chaos um but if we never had that to begin with what are we coming back to yeah i suppose yeah yeah it's, it's a very i mean it's, as you said it's already it's a very un it's not very structured well it is structured but it's not it's kind of weird it's, mm. it's not got a sort of a formal structure of like okay we've got a sonata or something mm. mm-hmm. but it does have a structure but it's it's an almost a non-structure. Oh, that sounds terribly very vague. I know. <laughs> no, but it is. It's um, at the same time uh, as it doesn't have a structure. It's very highly structured in its in its own way. That it uh, it is taking us through the steps of where we end up 
even from the beginning, even if we're not aware of it. Um, and I love pieces like that. There's, there's something so, um, jarring when you listen to some, uh, orchestra piece or, or anything really, chamber work or, or whatever. And it just, uh, switches on a dime. It feels really, uh, like getting hit in the face. It's, it's too jarring. And this one, Leviathan kind of brings you along that path. And so you've, uh, been accustomed to the dissonance and you've been accustomed to that, uh, feeling of no form form. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting in a way. I, I mean, I hadn't thought of this till now, but it kind of remo- reminds me of something, somebody like Shostakovich or somebody in his, mm. in his wilder times mm-hmm. where he takes you through, uh, um, a path which is very discordant and you're never quite, exp- and you never know quite where the resolution is and it doesn't always necessarily end well. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of, it kind of, this is a, I mean, I'm not trying to compare the two directly, but it kind of has that feel of a, a similar unfeeling unfe- to it as a kind of background. I don't know. It's a, yeah, I, I like the the analogy of not, uh, not knowing where the resolution is going to come or if it's going to come. And that, that feels very analogous, yeah, maybe to maybe to Shostakovich as well. And it's uh it's a neat place to be as a listener. I don't hate it when I'm listening to something like that, because it's surprising. It's uh it's the the magic trick of, you know, you think the card trick is gonna end one way and it ends in entirely different, you know. Yeah, and, and that's why I think in a way it'd make a great film score. You know, because it is one of these, it is a piece of music which, which su- hides its surprise, if you like. Mm. So it's, it's not like you've got a, you know, you listen to some film score music and you know it's going to resolve itself in a particular way because it is that type of music. But here, in a sense, if it was with a film, you wouldn't know if it was going to be a good ending, a bad ending or anything because you're not, you're not given those clues early on. Yeah. No, very true. Yeah. And, and having listened to, I don't know, four or five of Jared's pieces uh, here and there. I think that's probably a hallmark of Jared's writing is that there's this uh, kind of feeling of, uh, I don't know where it's going, but I'm I'm kind of okay with it. Yeah. I, I mean, they always say that, you know, the music kind of reflects the character of the person or reflects mm. the person's feeling. And, and you sort of has me wondering, hey, is this what, is this Jared's real life? I mean, is this Jared feel like this in everyday life or is this how he... <laughs> You know, it's because it's kind of interesting. It's a, it's an interesting place to be, to have that no idea whether where the where the conclusion is going to be. I mean, we all live in that in some way, but it's kind of interesting to hear it in the music. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting to see if uh, if that is how Jared uh, lives uh, his life, and if he's aware <laughs> of it or not. Because that's the other <laughs> telling thing is that he may be thinking he's writing these things that are completely counter personality, but they're absolutely part of his personality. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Kind of interesting, really. But, but I, I thought it was a, you know, one of those pieces that, uh, you know, for me was like the darkened room piece. You mm-hmm. know, I wanted to sit down in the dark and turn the lights off and, and just have the sound on its own. And, and it sort of made a, a world around you, if you know what I mean. And it was kind of like, I would have loved to have it on a, you know, a big system where you could hear all the sound coming from around you and, and this kind of thing. And I think that would have been quite an exciting experience. So maybe that's something to try. It's atmospheric. It's, it's spatial. It's, uh, mm. it feels very, um, all encompassing. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, it was one of those things you needed to be almost inside, if you know what I mean. Mm. I mean, it's kind of like a lot of that that music may be, Jared's not that old, but, but in the 1960s and 70s kind of music where you're, you you experience yourself immersed in, a, in an environment. And I mm-hmm. kind of got that feeling. It's it's a little bit retro for me in a way, but mm-hmm. it's kind of, but it's not because it's very modern in another way. So it's kind of harking back, but bringing you mod, into the modern era, maybe. I don't know. I always, I, I would have sworn I would never quote my mother in things, but uh, I always remember my mother when, when I was young, uh, flared jeans came back. Uh, and I remember my mother saying, I knew from the sixties yeah. they'd be back. And we did this in the sixties. And I remember saying, it's new. It's not from the sixties. This is not a reference to something old. It's not retro. And she said, yes, it is. It absolutely mm-hmm. is. But, it's the same with music. It all kind of comes yeah. back. Now you're making me feel old because I'm obviously the same age as your mother. So that's, <laughs> that's really brilliant. Thanks. She had great taste. She loved, yeah, well, she, she I loved the you, 60s. You get yourself out of that one, Jacob. Yeah, right. yeah but no, it does come back. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I, and I think it's kind of got an echo of that. You know, it reminds me of those... Um, there are some films from the 60s I remember. They weren't very good films, but they were very science fictiony films. Mm. Uh, you know, the low budget type films. And they had a, mm-hmm. a musical score, which was very much this sort of slightly distant score and all this kind of thing. And it, and it kind of has a, a little bit of feeling to that as well, you know, from the past. And of course, the whale song thing was the big thing in the 60s, 70s and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So you've got a bit of that in there. So it's kind of nice. It's kind of brings, but it, but it isn't, it isn't of that era. It's clearly of the new, a new era, but it, it has a, a feeling from the past, which is kind of nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does feel very much of today. It, it does make sense in that, that context for sure. And especially like in the style of playing, like these are all, I mean, working with, uh, maybe not extended techniques, that might be kind of a heavy word for, for what's happening in Leviathan, but, you know, it kind of asking string players to do things that uh, is not on their normal roster of techniques is a very new thing. And, and maybe the way or the outcome of those sound productions in a new way is uh, kind of referencing something from the past that they would have done mm-hmm. in a different way, or the sounds would have been created in a different way, but the method so, is so, new. So what sort of technique, I mean, do being a, a, not, a no understanding of this. So what sort of techniques are they using here, which is kind of non-standard? It's uh, like a, a literal glissing. So so uh, string instruments don't have frets, or at least um, orchestral string instruments don't have frets. And they're literally just pulling their finger down from the pitch. The tricky part about doing glisses, and I say this as a non-string player, and so my uh, understanding is as a conductor and a wind person, but the tricky thing about uh, doing glisses on a string is that... Um, the nebulous part of the gliss is not the hard part. It's the starting on an in-pitch definite absolute note and then going to the glissy pulled whale song sound. If you were asked to just go, that's not terribly difficult. But when you have to start on something that's really in tune and in pitch and gliss and maybe gliss to something else that is really in tune and in pitch, that's mm. quite hard to do. Um, and so that's what's happening in this a lot of the time is this kind of, um, it sounds maybe easier than it actually is. So, so is there a lot of um, imp- impromptuness to that sort of uh, the way they do that? I mean, or can you describe accurately as a composer how much of this 
this thing you need? I mean, or is it very much up to the player? It depends on the score. I And I haven't actually seen the score for Leviathan. I've seen scores that are really indeterminate and they say uh, players gliss ad nauseum and just kind of uh, go from, you know, you might have some pitches written in, but it'll literally just say the word gliss ad nauseum mm. and, and go. Um, and then there are people who, composers who write really specific, um, like pitched with a, a line down, timed within a bar, uh, and it looks very much like a regular score. Um, and it, <laughs> I mean, having, having worked with many composers now, I, I suppose it comes down to how much control the composer likes to have. <laughs> um, and if that's uh, something that they value. I've worked with composers who, uh, when you do something like glisses or, or something, will just write at the top, uh, gliss where you want. <laughs> and literally... <laughs> That's yeah. that's it, and then I've I've done scores that are very very specific in what they want, and they are asking you to pitch to the quarter tone and very very precise things. But I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I haven't looked at the score. It'd be kind of interesting because it is, as you say, you know, a, a piece which is a bit discordant. There's a bit of a dissonance in it, so you always feel that the players, I mean, not being experienced, they're just doing random things. Mm. I mean, they're probably not, but it but it mm-hmm. makes you feel they almost are, and that's kind of clever if you've written something which makes it seem almost random does that no it does having played like many of these these types of pieces it's harder to make it sound random when it's uh very clearly laid out than it is to actually just play Mm. random things but the 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 impressive thing is when you have a composer who writes something that does like you say sound really randomized and um kind of free form but it's extremely specifically written out and precise um there are there are many pieces like chance music where you just kind of uh have a you know a pitch set that you have to play and it, your your score is just four notes and you play them for 15 minutes interchanged oh. and with whatever rhythms you want and whatever octave and and whatever uh and they they obviously sound very random but that's uh the easy way out for a composer sometimes you know <laughs> that sounds it great well shall we move on to the next one yeah let's talk about uh, undersea and over sky which uh was written originally for the national uh, youth orchestra of canada uh, i believe for one of their tours i think they were in spain and it would have been uh just before uh the dreaded shutdown. So it would have been in 2019, summer of 2019. So I think they toured um, that summer with this piece. And this is for full orchestra. So unlike unlike Leviathan, which was a chamber piece, this is for, for, for full orchestra. Um, and they play it extremely well. This is the uh, National Youth Orchestra of Canada. Oh, let's listen.
Okay, so this was um, had some similarities to Leviathan, but but it was also different in many ways. Um, and I got a lot of similar feeling. I guess we've got the same composer, obviously, but it, but it is very different. It uh, to me, it sounds different because it uh, from that chaos actually comes into uh, stark crystalline uh, melodic tonal center it uh, rather than kind of spinning out of control it spins into control um, or at least that's how I feel about it it kind of uh, from many like floating particles coalesces into one solid thing um, and then maybe like Leviathan it also kind of peters out to to a, a pretty um, quiet ending i suppose uh but there's the the big moment near the end where it all comes together to something really clear and and mm. put together and uh from like a purely musical standpoint it's very tonal and it, it kind of makes sense from a uh harmony standpoint it really clicks into a really solid framework mm. yeah i mean for somebody who's not terribly musical i i got a lot of similar feelings at the beginning mm. and, and you sort of think okay i'm going along the same track here in a way because it had a you know this beginning where it's very quiet and that and then as you say it does go slightly different path uh, but overall it still for me had a similar structure i mean it was still mm. you know it took you somewhere maybe which the other one didn't uh, and maybe resolved itself but you still ended up at the end for me just just leaving me somewhere that i wasn't quite sure where I was it kind of had a had a sort of quiet feeling and it was like ah oh, okay it didn't it didn't for me it didn't come out a hundred percent like like I finished you know what I mean it kind of still left me thinking oh okay it's a question here or something and maybe that's what Jared wants is that uh you can you can take us on a path that is uh never really sure where we're going and it leaves us somewhere kind of nebulous or mm. you can take us on a path that takes us somewhere and also leaves us somewhere kind of nebulous that <laughs> the end product is probably the same yeah and and I kind of you know, and this brings back I think a little bit to me about you know we've talked about this before about queer music and and I kind of, this this music actually set me thinking quite a lot about this because um, you know it it isn't structured mm. and it doesn't have this formality and and I kind of guess for me that's a bit there's a queerness to that I don't know it's mm. sort of it's a very uh, maybe that's I don't know if that's good or bad but but it <laughs> kind of had this feeling of being very much um, uh, informal I, I that's not mm. the word I want but it, it kind of like went with a um, a feeling of change and a feeling of, mm. of of variety and and a feeling of not having to be to be defined. If you know what I mean, it's it's kind of like um, you know it, it, in some music you know, you've got a very defi def definitive sort of structure and it's very defined. You've got to, you're going to have this and this and this and you know what's coming. Mm -hmm. Here it was like we don't know where we're going. We don't really know and. And that kind of is a is a is a is a queerness to that to me in the sense mm -hmm. we don't know we, we we're a much more don't know where we are kind of people and we don't know where we're going quite but we don't really care to some level it's kind of like yeah. you know and that sort of maybe I'm reading too much into it but it kind of gave me that feeling. But I think it it makes sense to me too. I think there's a, a certain part of uh, part of a lot of people that are kind of okay with living in those. Uh, uncomfortable uh pathless uh, liminal spaces that are kind of just 
queer spaces a lot of the time that it's not uh it isn't as defined and it's not a a one path trajectory and it's uh musically that makes a lot of sense probably as well that it it doesn't feel structured or bound by the boxes of Mm. you know traditional form or or whatever and i mean certainly there's there's been a large movement in orchestral music for the last well, let's say, what are we in 2021? 100 years, we'll say, say 100 years, where it's been trying to push the boundaries of what form in orchestral or classical or however we want to define it, music is. But I, A, would argue many of the pushing of those boundaries have been by queer people, had they not been out or out, uh, that many of the people were doing that were queer, but also that uh, the the boundaries are are pushed so far back in some people's music that there's not even a reference to there having ever been a box that there mm-hmm. wasn't uh anything to to sit within that maybe uh the starting place for some some composers uh who are writing from that kind of queered stage that there wasn't any box to write within it's always been this strange uh mm-hmm. wandering space it's kind of interesting when when i look back and think of like you know, particularly development of American classical music in the, in the early part of the 20th century, you suddenly have a lot of queer composers turning up, uh, particularly mm. gay men, because obviously that was the easiest thing to be in and be out. Mm. Mm-hmm. But you had a lot of that development. And and I kind of think that's that was almost like the starting point in many ways for this sort of like breaking out of the box structure, because they broke out not only because... They, they were gay but also they lived in a in a country where you could break out of the box or you, you thought mm-hmm. you could break out of the box for so it's kind of a you know maybe you trace that through from there as the, the springing out into classical music of a more queer nature i don't know and there were so many of these uh, early american uh, gay men writing that maybe you didn't find a place writing in classical orchestral world at first but they could find a place writing for early film or broadway yeah, or yeah, theater exactly. or broadway yeah and it does translate i mean when you listen to really old broadway it's very orchestral like it's very classical based um but they were able to write in that space and then it absolutely transferred back i mean by the time we got to the the 60s and we had lenny bernstein writing candide and yeah. um west side story that's just music theater <laughs> like it's it is. pure it is. music theater but oh, yeah. written in an orchestral sense um but it's it really allowed people that space to do that for sure yeah yeah and now you can sort of see it now in something like jared's music you know he's kind of broken there aren't as you say maybe no boxes anymore the structure's gone Mm -hmm. uh but but you still got for me a theatrical component to it it has Mm -hmm. a a show feel to it in a way or a film film way to it it's Mm -hmm. not a it's not a it's not a i don't want to say pure classical but you know what i mean it's got a showman bit to mm-hmm. it like like you say Leonard Bernstein has you know if you think if you think of Candide I mean mm-hmm. that is you know all showgirl and everything type of thing you just love <laughs> and, and it's fantastic you know but but it is classical and it's that kind of mix which I think is you start to see more of mm-hmm. but I think this is a good example of that you're right that that um Undersea and Sky is a great uh piece that highlights a lot of those those tenets and it's interesting maybe that it was written for a youth orchestra that is also kind of a a neat way to do that because i mean many times youth orchestras uh, around the world tend to commission new things for their 
because they run on seasons, uh, mm. like a summer season. And so they'll often commission something, but it gives you this license to write whatever you want. You do, you, because you're a writing for youth and, uh, chances are, uh, it's, it has a, a slightly more limited audience because it's written for a, a youth orchestra somewhere. Um, and it probably has a life within that world more so than a professional world or like a, a higher level world. Not always. Um, but there's uh, like a certain license to, to write for those youth orchestras and, and kind of come at it from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think there's a, I mean, it's always seems to me and been a fact and it is now that that the youth are much more um able to 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 be positive towards queerness as it were i mean you've seen it all along it's it's generally the people that are that are against any queer behavior gay or transphobia is almost always the old people Mm -hmm. i'm an old person i can say that but (laughs) but 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 you know you see the youth are generally the ones that that embrace this sort of new stuff coming in and I wonder sometimes if writing for a youth orchestra enables you to to push the boundaries more, not just in terms of queerness, but in terms of everything, because it, young people tend to be more open to, to new ideas and suggestions. Oh, absolutely. And they, in every world, obviously, but the orchestral world, I mean, they, professional older players who've been playing with an orchestra for many years have really decided what they do and don't like. And they have long (laughs) ago decided what they are willing to do or how much effort they're willing to put into something that they, they don't enjoy. And I see it all the time. Uh, And it is what it is, but, but, but it's true of of kind of everything. It's, it's from uh, extended techniques to working with um, pop and folk artists to uh, queer music, to whatever it is that is kind of, put in front of people there's certainly a an openness and a willingness with youth ensembles to do whatever is put in front of them maybe partially it's because they haven't had the chance to solidify those ideas so firmly that they uh they don't like new music or they don't like playing atonal that they don't like uh you know playing for pop vocalists or whatever it is um but i think there's also an element for sure that uh youth are more generally speaking, accepting of uh, like socially queer things. Mm. And so then queer music tends to uh, hit home a little more. I also think, I mean, I, I mean we're, we're preaching to the choir, but we, um, <laughs> I would say, I mean, there, there has, there's not more queer people now than there were at any other time. <laughs> it was just a matter of visibility and, and who was able to be, you know out and queer so it's not that in the you know 50s there were fewer queer people to to uh listen to music or write music or perform music but there certainly is a higher level of visibility now Mm. even from when i was uh, going through you know let's say high school which was not terribly long ago um and now there is when i go back and do clinics in high schools i just see more visibly queer kids which is great it's fantastic um when i was in high school i think there were three of us who were out at all point Mm. blank period end of story but now there's uh like a much higher percentage of kids who are out and queer and so there's there's certainly a a much higher uh interest in playing queer music and Mm. performing it yeah yeah it's it's kind of i mean that's brilliant for me i mean being older when i was at school there, there were no there were no queer people Mm. there were people who people thought were queer if you know mm. what i mean there was always mm-hmm. the ones that were you know sort of thing 
but but it was it was sort of an impossibility. But you always recognise people. You know, we had uh, David Bowie and people like that and pop stars, mm-hmm. and you saw them, and and you just knew, you know, even though they never were, were out as obviously as that, but, but they were there. So it, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting, really, as you say. It's not a it's the same number of queer people. It's just that now we're we're visible, which is which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Thanks again for listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the music and conversation. We're looking forward to bringing you the next podcast soon. Also, many thanks to Jared Miller for all the incidental music we are using. Until next time.